Hi, my name is Dr. Kara King, and my co-host, Dr. Mary Rensel, and I want to welcome you to the Women's Professional Staff Association podcast called Inspirations and Insights from Cleveland Clinic Women Docs. In this podcast, we will share conversations with women doctors from all career stages and practices, exploring the highlights and challenges of being a woman in medicine. We hope these thought-provoking stories inspire you and provide insight into the unique challenges and accomplishments of remarkable women docs. Welcome everyone to our very first episode of Inspirations and Insights from Cleveland Clinic Women Docs. We are so excited to have you all join us today. To start off our series, we are thrilled to welcome Dr. Wilma Bergfeld. Wilma has been at the Cleveland Clinic since 1964 and was a co-founder of the Women's Professional Staff Association, which was started in 1984. She has truly paved the way for all women who have followed. Wilma is Emeritus Director and Past Director and Co-Director of Dermatopathology, Departments of Dermatology and Pathology. She has received countless awards and has served as President on multiple international societies. In addition, she has more than 600 publications and over 80 book chapters. In our interview today, Wilma offers incredible insight into what it felt like to be only one of five women on staff at Cleveland Clinic, embracing gender communication differences, and work-life integration. We hope you enjoy. I want to welcome Dr. Wilma Bergfeld today to our WPSA podcast. Thank you so much, Wilma, for your time. You're welcome. So we are so excited to have you here with us today, and I want to dive right into some questions. So you started here at the Cleveland Clinic back in 1967 when you and your husband, who is an orthopedic surgeon, both started here on staff. Is that right? Well, no, not exactly. We came in as interns in 1964 and then did I did my residency in dermatology and my husband in orthopedics. And in 1967, I came on staff, and my husband soon followed me when he left the Navy. I see. So you trained here as well. Yes, we did. Mm -hmm. You've seen a few changes here in Cleveland. A lot of changes. (laughs) I can imagine. And I heard that they were hesitant to let you join as staff because you were married. Is that a true story? Well, it's very true. If I could go back in history a bit, uh, my husband and I were part of the first internship class at the Cleveland Clinic. There were 20 individuals in that internship class, five of whom were women, which was unusual. And they had about 100 fellows in the Cleveland Clinic at that time. And the staff hovered around 100, 150 at that time in total. And we were in the old building up on Euclid Avenue, which is now used as office buildings. And I think some of the various medical specialties are still there, but it's the old building that's been refabbed on Euclid Avenue. It's really interesting history. Yeah, no, I was just asking about how they were hesitant to let you join on staff because you were married. I want to hear about that. Well, that was a very interesting event because when we were in, I was on the staff before my husband went in the Navy. And uh, when he went on into the Navy, I joined him after six months and I took a leave of absence. So when he got out of the Navy some three years later, 1970, the orthopedic department invited him back as staff and he was gonna head up the sports medicine because he had been at the Naval Academy and been over all the midshipmen and been the head sports medicine orthopod there. When that was proposed, the board of governors and then the leadership said, well, we, we can't have them both here his wife will have to resign. So uh, that was quite upsetting. I didn't really know about it at that time, but I heard about it later. 
the Department of Orthopedics in full, which was then five or six orthopedic surgeons, marched down to the CEO's office and said they were quitting. And uh, with that, that was broken. Uh, no more do, could they say that not a family member could be on the staff of the Cleveland Clinic. And it opened the door for many married couples for the future. And of course, we were the first married couple on the staff. Wow. So you did, did you know any of that was going on behind the scenes? Not really. I heard about it later when my husband joined the staff, obviously. <laughs> uh, I had come back six months early from Annapolis, Maryland, where we were stationed. And so I had started to work again. But I did hear about it because he was going through the review process. And, and then during that time, I heard about it. But my department did nothing. I did not resign. <laughs> we did nothing. It was the orthopedic group that marched down there and demanded that he be put on the staff. Oh, my gosh. So the men marched down there because they wanted your husband. And so that therefore meant you. Is that were they fighting for you? Well, no, I was already on the staff. Got it. And I was they were asking the leadership was asking me to resign. Oh, my goodness. So he could come on the staff. So I can't even imagine the barriers that you faced. I mean, it was an entire new, entire different world here. It was indeed. There were only five women anywhere at the Cleveland Clinic. I was the second female on the staff. We did have a couple researchers, maybe three, and there were two of us. Kathy Poponiak was the first. And then we had one of the heart researchers was a female. And then there was another female buried somewhere in research. But there were only five of us. And two of us were the only visible ones because we were actually in practice. And since then, you know, the numbers are much exceeded that. And because there were so few of us and because we didn't have any rights, nor we ever put on a committee, nor did we ever have any kind of leadership opportunity, we requested, Dr. Gita Gidwani and I, she was a GYN surgeon, we requested that we be able to form a women's professional group that included not only physicians, but scientists and also administrators because we didn't have enough numbers to do anything. And we met monthly for years and discussed our trials and tribulations at the Cleveland Clinic. We presented ourselves at the Board of Governors demanding that a woman be placed on the Board of Governors over time. The most important change in the first change was getting the women surgeons, and there were, Gita was one, and I believe there soon followed another, a dressing room and sleeping quarters. And at that time, they were sleeping and dressing with the men. Wow. And this isn't even that long ago, which is just appalling what, what, you, what you all faced during, during your faculty. I just can't even imagine this. Well, I still remember going up in an elevator. I was a young staff, and I was becoming very active nationally, presenting some of the materials that we were working on in the clinic here in dermatology. I was going up with a senior physician in the elevator, and he said to me, well, Wilma, we discussed you, and we decided that you shouldn't come into any committees or have any leadership role because you have two children, and you should go home at night and be with them. Well, I can tell you how angry I was, very, very angry. I, I said, you don't have that right. If I am qualified to be in a position of that type, then I ought to be able to make the decision if invited. And so, you know, it spurred me on to be very vigorous. And uh, for years, I was called a maverick. 
And I, I went against the institution and, and just in normal thinking, you know, this might be an idea or I don't think that's right. The fact that I even had an opinion was not welcomed. But over time, if you look at my curriculum vitae, I did manage to get elected to the board of governors, board of trustees I served on and president of the staff because it was the time of the Mavericks in the late 70s and the early 80s. They decided that people who just went around along with leadership and never had an opinion or never gave a secondary opinion about what was happening or what they should do were not the people they wanted in leadership. They wanted people who questioned what was going on and looked at other solutions. So I, I was very lucky because it was, I call it the time of maverickism. <laughs> and my husband being the same kind of character, uh, different personalities a little bit, but same character, also did the same thing and ended up with some major leadership here at the Cleveland Clinic, but also nationally and internationally, as did I. And I guess the highlight of, of succumbing all of this and, and being on top of it was... I set a goal when I was about 34 years old, working here with my two children and my husband at home and, you know, caregivers for the children at that time, that I didn't want to be a common dermatologist, that I was going to work every day and I should have the opportunity to achieve anything I put my heart to. So I set my goals one night when I was setting, sitting for my boards, studying I said, well, I think I should look to be the president of the American Academy of Dermatology. They'd never had a female president. And I think I should try to get on the honoraries, in the Honorary Society of Dermatology. And at that time, they had one female in. And it is a group since mid-1800s that it had existed. So then I said to myself, well, how do you get there? And I said, I better get some skills, some leadership skills, some organizational skills. So I took on every job possible to build those skills. At the same time, the Cleveland Clinic had discovered that it had to train some of his physician leadership people. And they began to give director's courses and business courses. And you were selected every year, a number of people to do that, which exists today. But we were the first to go in. So skill building became very important. And lo and behold, involvement just being involved and passionate about one's work and willing to put the output to to achieve, to get there and to be at the table. Ultimately, I became the president of everything. (laughs) President of the County Medical Society, president of the local and state Durham Society. We founded the Women's Durham Society at the Cleveland Clinic just about the time we were founding the women's professional group here. I was president of the American Academy of Dermatology, and I was president of the honorary society called the American Dermatological Association. And lo and behold, at this age, and I'm old now, I've been here over 52 years, I have just received an outstanding award for my efforts in training dermatopathologists, and the ACGME has just awarded my program the highest achievement award for all programs. Wow. So I, I said, wow. Still achieving. How about that one? (laughs) (laughs) And of course, if I reflect back in my American Academy of Dermatology activities, I I have been awarded the Master Dermatology Award and the Salzberger Research Award. So I can go on and on. And in the Women's Dermatological Society, they have named a scholarship for achieving women after me, which and they named me the first person to receive this, which is interesting. Uh, But anyhow, 
not taking this too seriously. It's just the end result of working hard, having goals, supporting others, developing teams of approach, and being female. I enjoy being a female through all this and have seen that females can be leaders. They're a little softer. They usually will take on multi-focused approaches to any kind of problem and have alternate pathways. So I enjoyed being a female in my leadership expansion. Wow. So on that note, Wilma, I'm fairly certain that you are a superhero. Well, I never looked at it that way. I enjoyed so much what I did and all the people I met on the way and all those that I've helped and seen them achieve. I just think it's been a wonderful career and a wonderful life. And I enjoy still working because I'm able and uh, pretty much doing the same thing I've always done and achieving at the same level that I always have done. So I, I just feel I've had a gifted life. I just cannot thank you enough for paving the way for our generation. I mean, you have made it possible for for us women to be here and to have the success that we're having. So truly, from my heart, thank you so much. Oh, you're very welcome. So I I, want to dive into so many other things from your stories. Let's start with leadership for a moment. You know, you mentioned how female leaders sometimes have to be a little bit softer, I think is the word that you used. They are naturally softer. Yeah. Tell me more. They have to embrace that. You don't want to act like a man. Mm -hmm. Uh, You just need to be act like a professional. And you have to look like a professional. You have to speak like a professional. You have to realize that women approach problems or uh, problem solving differently than a male. And the end result might be the same. But also, you don't want to deny yourself that privilege of approaching it differently. Because you will have different solutions many times. And the women also don't seem to be so focused on themselves. They don't mind bringing up the younger ones, male or female. I have mentored males as well and had many of them come back and say, thank you, thank you. But the reality is you want to embrace yourself as a person and a woman and build your skills so that you can lead others. But you cannot do that by just saying, I want to do it. You've got to be involved. And you have to divide your life up so that you can be involved and not shirk your duties if you're a home caregiver or you have family or husband or other. You want to have that kind of life, too. So what I did when I was very young, because I was very stressed, I'm a dermatologist, I'm a pathologist, I have a home, I had parents and I have extended family. How was I going to manage all this? So I decided I would build boxes and I would live in each box for a certain amount of time during the day, but I wouldn't cross over the boxes. So I had a derm box for the clinical part of my life, and I wouldn't let my secretaries break into my other box, which is my path box, (laughs) when I was supposed to be in pathology. And so if I kept the boxes reasonably clean and my home box clean, I rarely did work at home. I did everything at work before I went home, Or on occasion, I would say two or three times a year, I might have to spend a weekend writing a paper or doing something else. But I managed to be exceedingly efficient and I managed to have a relaxed life because I didn't have all this persuasion coming from my other boxes because I I would not allow it. I would not allow it. I lived in my box that I was working in at that part of the day. For instance, the morning was dermatology, the afternoon was pathology, and the evening was home. So I found an equilibrium for myself. And I had a husband who was working very, very hard, 
And he was a Browns doctor, the Cavs doctor, consultant for the Indians, traveled with him. So I pretty much had it on my own to do it my own way. Now it's a little more difficult. He's semi-retired. He's, he's telling me what he thinks he ought to be, I ought to be doing. I said, I've been on my own too long, John. <laughs> I can do this myself. I like your opinion, but you're not going to sway me. <laughs> that anyhow, is funny. You can manage even if you have a family. Because what happens when you're young and you're, you're achieving in your profession and trying to keep up with it, you may not be able to do a lot of extra stuff. But those kids get to be an age where they don't want you around. So, you know, I remember at 16 years of age, I gave my oldest daughter the keys and said, now you're driving your sister. I am no longer this chauffeur. I guess what happened on the weekends was I had to depend on other women that were home bodies to take my kids to and from or a housekeeper or whatever. They assigned me the weekends. So I spent the whole weekend driving a bunch of kids around to various functions because I was the only free time I had. But I bit the bullet on that. Because they got to be 16, I have to do that anymore. <laughs> and then as I went from 16 to 20, that's another different phase of your life where you're, you're continuing to mold your child and, and direct them to college and then obviously marriage. But then you're free. <laughs> you are free. And so you can start to dabble a little bit uh, when they get a little older into things that you think you'd like to pursue greater than what you're doing. You can spend more time at it, too, because you don't know, need so much of a home box. Um, whatever. You can exercise. You can diet. And I would say you need to be in a woman's group because you need to be in a woman physician group or a working woman's professional group because they are your support. A woman who stays at home all the time, as bright as she can be, is not that supportive of you. Right. But people who are doing the same thing that you do and the balancing act that you're doing are the people you need to relate to. And forming the Women's Derm Society group and also the professional women of the Cleveland Clinics group here, these are your support people. And these are the people who will help you through all kinds of adverse events, confrontation events, life events, help you to succeed and be as happy as you can be. These are the groups that will train you in leadership. I remember the first groups we used to have, both in Durham and in, in the Cleveland Clinic, everyone talked over each other. That's common for women, and they're so creative. I used to just take notes, and we come out, and we come, how we brainstorm this? My God, we did all kinds of stuff here tonight. But then there, it became evident that when we had a male in there, they didn't appreciate that. So we had to get a little more order going. And so then we had to learn to do that order, how that organizational skill went, and we have served as training grounds for women to do that. It didn't change their character, just changed some of their behavior and to make it more acceptable and also allowed for getting to the end where you'd have something that had to be discussed. You'd have a format to discussion and then you'd have a, a strategic plan that came out of that discussion. So it allowed you to move from the beginning to the end a little easier than the common way that women like to do it. Now, if you ask me when I'm with my friends and family, do I talk all the time? You betcha. <laughs> you betcha. Because that's what I like to do. But in a professional setting, no, no, no. And I had a, one of my colleagues, I work in Washington, uh, chair of cosmetic safety committee for cosmetic chemicals and have for now about 40 years. He said to me, I always know when you're going to come in and get them, Wilma, because you don't say anything and then you lean forward and then you blast them. I had to unlearn that trait 
because I didn't care to let them be warned. <laughs> You're giving <laughs> so I, a preview. Uh, yeah. So it was very interesting. Uh, it was just a little bit of a statement, but body language gets to be really important. But I still remember at the Cleveland County of Medicine, we were discussing, I was on the board at that time. I was actually going to run for president, which I did do and did win. Uh, but I was on the board and we were discussing changing the voting districts. And there were some very dominant males there that had been at UH and in private practice. And I was sitting there. I, I'm the daughter of three generations of physicians and they were all members of the Academy of Medicine of Cleveland. So I was really glad to be there representing my family. But anyhow, they were having this discussion and they wanted to vote on it because they're going to change these voting districts. So I said, well, I didn't think that was a good idea. That was really an important vote. Oh, no, no, no. Well, you don't know. You don't know. I said, well, could I just ask a couple questions? And the question I asked was, who sent this forward to be voted on? Oh, our planning committee. Uh-huh. When do they meet? Oh, the other day. How long was the meeting? Oh, they had a big discussion for an hour and a half. I said, what was on the agenda? Oh, they had a busy agenda. I said, so we're going to vote on such a mammoth decision. And they probably spent 15 minutes on it. Wow. They called the vote. It went down. No one voted for it. So I learned very easily <laughs> that the, the way to success in a vote is to figure out what's really in the background and then come after that. Not go head in head just because it's you against me. Right. You, know, you have to come in with a, a dissection of what's occurred there and what's important. That has served me greatly. Do your homework. To know that. Yeah, absolutely. And what I'm really hearing you say, which I think is so important, is that men are different from women. And for women absolutely. to be exceptional leaders, we don't have to be like men. We shouldn't be like men, right? Absolutely really? not. And We're different and we should be proud of it. Embrace that and because that actually bodes well for us, right? Yes, and it brings something else to the table and it makes for better decision making. And so I think that that is pretty well accepted now. Yeah. You know, most decision-making groups do include women and, and different ethnic groups as well, and also people who are not even in the field, just for that other opinion, which needs to be considered. Yes, absolutely. And the other thing I'm hearing is to really, really compartmentalize your life. Absolutely. And have boundaries and stick with those boundaries, right? Absolutely. Yeah. If you're a visual person, you know, derms are visual people. We look at skin all day. Yeah. wrinkles, you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But we're very visual. But I used to visualize the box. Yeah. And what was in it. Yeah. And I also visualized a circle of leadership that I couldn't get into. And I was had my my vision that I kept running around the circle, but there was no door to go in. Wow. And finally, there was. You made a door. You had like a chainsaw. <laughs> but anyhow, I, I'm very visual, but I think visual helps. Yeah, absolutely. Rather than just all words. Yeah. You can visualize it. And visualize where you want to go. And visualize the different pathways. And we had one of our junior staff say she wanted to be the program director. And we discussed it. She presented herself to the committee, blah, 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 blah. And I said, well, really, what is it you really want to do? She said, well, I want to be a head, head hospital administrator. I said, so why would you want to be the program director? Why don't you go for a different skill? You yeah. need a different administrative skill. So she's going off to Harvard to take a business class. 
awesome. So don't cap yourself too short, right? No. Why no. not get into that, that inner circle, baby? That's right. Yeah. Oh, I love it. You know, one thing that I thought was so funny that you, that you stated earlier about your husband now being retired and, and how he worked a lot and now he's home. And I just expected you to say that things would be easier now that he's home. And you're, oh, like, no. <laughs> and you're no. like, no, things are much more difficult. He's meddling with my system. Is that Absolutely. right? Absolutely. He's in my way. Yeah. I love that. He's even telling me what to cook and whether <laughs> he liked it or not. And he told me the other day I had too much uh, asparagus in something. I said, what? Excuse what? me? <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me? Did you eat it? Yes. Well, stop commenting. <laughs> less, less words. Yeah, exactly. So I want you to bring me into your household when you had these two young kids. Talk to me about the tribe that you built. You know, you talk about having, you know, other moms that maybe had different professions that were home more and maybe cleaners. What did your tribe look like? How did you make your house work when you're so busy, you know, in your other boxes? Well, uh, first thing, I had full-time help for the children until they were 10. And then I had part-time help that came in daily to clean and do whatever. I always did all the grocery shopping because I sort of like that, like shopping. I had a mother and a sister, and a sister-in-law in town, which I could count on, and some friends. But then I had the children's friends and their parents, and they're the ones that I traded off some of the driving responsibilities. But the reality is the girls learn how to function. And uh, they were very good on the phone with patients. I still remember one day, John and I were to entertain some international orthopedic surgeons who were in town, and we're both late getting home. And so I called the girls and I said, uh, Ani and Sig, you, you've got to get the cocktails out and the cheese. You know how to do that. When I got home, we're about 40 minutes late. There they were, perched up on the chairs, talking away at these men. Wow. With their cocktails, with their hors d'oeuvres. Very comfortable. And my daughter now, who is 55, says she can do anything. She said, you had us doing all kinds of things, mother. I know, calling the grocery store, calling the dry cleaner, (laughs) running here, running there. And I even sent them on airplanes to their grandparents when we were in Annapolis, Maryland by themselves when they were little, eight, six. Yeah. And they they can maneuver an airport like you can't believe. And they can't (laughs) understand why their kids can't do it. I said, because you didn't start them early enough to do this. So they became very independent and very strong women and, and very successful women and, and great housewives. Yeah, they take after their mother completely. Well, I don't know about that. <laughs> my mother's more compulsive than they are, but <laughs> oh anyhow, they're great wives and mothers. That's so nice to hear. You know, I have three young kids and, you know, it's, it's, there's always that push-pull, right, of the different boxes that we have. And yes. I think it's really important to hear that by us being full-time or part-time, but I'm very full-time physician as well, we're being great role models for our kids, right? Like we're showing them what hard work can do. And you show yeah. them how to deal with situations. Yeah. How to solve it, how to feel good about solving it. Uh, I'm very proud of my girls and the fact that I have relatives whose mothers stayed at home, the kids who grew up, and they haven't done so well. Well, years ago, one of the first formal functions we went to at the Cleveland Clinic was this beautiful Christmas party where everybody got invited and had wonderful cocktails. There wasn't so many people. I was standing in line for my meal at the buffet and I had several young women who were housewives say to me, you should be home. I was in tears. I know. 
I know. And then I had another episode when I went to a party. I was into my career in my mid-40s, and I was moving ahead nationally to be an officer. I was at the Cleveland Clinic Christmas party, a little bigger party this time. And as I was walking out, one of the Board of Governors said to me, you walk a very thin line, Wilma. I said, I was with my husband. I said, I walk a thin line. He said, we talk about you every board of directors meeting. I said, really? He said, you should come and talk to me. So we're walking out. My husband said, oh, Wilma, you better go talk to him. You better find out what's going on. I said, I'm not going to talk to him. I'm walking the line. (laughs) I love you. (laughs) But those words hurt, right? Yeah. I know. Yeah. Think, well, why would they be talking about me? But that was a time when there were like five or six women here that, you know, that was a long time ago. Right. You stuck out, right? And those judgments, you know, and even though in our heart of hearts, we know that everything is fine. Our kids are doing great. We've, we've created this tribe around them. Those words still hurt. I, I'm, with, I'm right there with you. And those words, unfortunately, are still being said. It's true. I think so. I think that's why you have to join the women professional group. Yeah. Because they all have those being said to them. And, you know, if you get into a good group, there's a lot of good communication going on, a lot of support, a lot of skills being transferred. You may not see these women often, but that's often enough. And it's also a phone call away if if you get to have a friend. And I have friends all over the world that I communicate by email mainly. But when we we were allowed to go to meetings, frequently at the meetings, And the women have become very strong because of this. They feel very internally good about themselves. And, you know, every once in a while, someone has something with divorce or someone has something bad with their kid or a kid dies. I mean, these women are all there to support each other, which is really wonderful because it it is a woman who's doing what you're doing and facing some of the same issues that you're facing, trying to get a balance in life. And so you, you take those words to your heart because they're good, good advice, very good advice and support. It's really powerful. I love those words. And, you know, speaking about supporting other women, I, I want to pull on a story that I heard about you that may be my favorite story ever. So it's about Dr. Lynn Drake. So, you know, it's crucial for women to support other women for us to make these synergistic gains together. And I, again, I've read so many different accounts of you pulling women into the fold, really raising other people up. And, you know, we really continue, we need to lift as we climb, right? We only can do this together. And a story that I think embodies that perfectly is the story about Dr. Lynn Drake when she was about to give her presidential address for the AAD. Do you know what story I'm referencing? Yes. Yes. (laughs) Can you tell us about that? I love this story. Well, uh, Lynn Drake uh, was a the second woman president of the American Academy of Dermatology, and we were thrown together in leadership and became close friends because we were both achievers and outspoken individuals. But anyway, she was uh, in preparation to be on stage for the presidential address to 5,000 dermatologists. And I took one look at her. She's a short little woman and a little bit chubby. No jewelry, no <laughs> earrings, nothing. And she's going to have this great big video camera on her. She's going to be shown in detail to 5,000 people. <laughs> I pull off my earrings and I give them to her. I say, Lynn, put these earrings on. You've got to look better than this. So she goes up there. And she's told that story over and over again, that that was a sign of a real friend. Well, I tell you what, I was panicked when I looked at her. I said, oh, my God. But the other thing, I also did it with her purse. Her purse was so terrible. I've been buying her purses for 20 years. 
so she would have a decent purse to carry to a meeting. Oh my gosh! I love it. You're like you need to pull it together. You're you're gonna be on the you're gonna be on the big screen. Come on now. <laughs> and she's. I want to tell you, this woman is something else. She is the fundraiser for the Department of Dermatology and their research center, the Wellman Labs. Twenty, thirty million dollars a year she brings in. She's wow. amazing. It's amazing. She doesn't care much about what she looks like. Her strength is not accessories. You have to help her out. Anyhow, she's a good gal and so bright, so able. Yeah, Lynn asked me one time, she said, well, well, why do you do it this way? She's more outspoken than I am. I'm not laid back, but I I choose my moments. Yeah. Uh, She said, why do you do it this way? And I thought and thought, I said, oh, no, it's just in me. This is what I do. That's what I always have done. And I thought about it. After a few years, I said, you know, Lynn, I figured it out. My mother, my mother lived next door to my father's sister. And and she was a lovely woman, but she hated my mother. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because her husband died, who was a doctor. Mm. And her mother had a husband who was a doctor and kids. And she was living with her her father, my grandfather with her kids and she just couldn't stand it. And so my mother just happily went on her way. She said, just put on blinders. Yeah. Always included her, never responded to anything negative. It was a lot of negative, never responded and kept a happy family together. And I said, I think that's who showed me how to do that. That you need to go forward and you don't need to bring all that negativity with you. And even if there's someone who you don't like or has misbehaved against you, you can be nice to them, yeah. but you don't, you don't have to do a whole lot for them, but you can be nice for them, but you don't have to have revenge. Yes. Revenge is evil, and you should need to toss that out if you've got it. I used to say I had a problem in the Department of Dermatology years ago with a chairman who uh, decided that I committed malpractice, and I had a patient who was a psychiatric patient who I dermabrated his face. And he told me that I should have asked him if I should dermabrate this child's face. I said, well, I got psychiatry to sign off of him. And I'm on the staff. Why would I ask you, the chairman? He says, malpractice. What? So I went through a year here at the Cleveland Clinic. Wow. My father said to me one night, he said, well, why are you so down? You went to the Cleveland Clinic. You had joined my clinic, a Euclid Clinic. And I had left there. I left my family's clinic to come back to the Cleveland Clinic, I said, Dad, I have to. I have to protect myself. And he said to me, you went there to accomplish something. And I said, yes, I did. He said, you're not accomplishing anything. I went to bed that night, and I said, that's it. No more revenge. No more of this protection stuff I'm thinking about. I said, I'm going to have antennae. And my antennae are going to be constantly working, (laughs) and they'll help protect me while I move forward. I love that. It's your barrier, your barrier of good energy. Absolutely. You know, it reminds me of this quote. I'm not sure if you've heard this before. Uh, I've read it. I read it a few times. It says, fix another queen's crown without telling the world it was crooked. Have you heard of that before? No, I haven't, but that's very apropos. <laughs> it just, it reminds me of you, right? Of um, of just yeah. really, you know, building other people up and not having to surface other things, other weaknesses to build yourself up, right? Like together, raise everybody. That's part of personal empowerment. And yeah. again, in my early years here, <laughs> I had to learn to say I was okay. And all these people criticizing me, it was their problem. Yes. And so I self-empowered. So I don't need all that. 
I mean, all these things that have happened to me, I'm really grateful and I've loved doing it. But I, I was okay before that. Yeah, yeah. It takes a strong woman to have that to have that insight, though. So again, you are just an, an amazing, amazing role model, sponsor, mentor, teacher, all the things, Wilma. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. It's been an ap- absolute honor talking with you, and uh, we hope to have you back on again soon. Thanks, Kyra. Thank you for listening today. Join us again as we draw inspirations and insights from women doctors past, present, and future. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at WPSA1. That's at WPSA and the number one. This podcast is supported by Cleveland Clinic's Women's Professional Staff Association as part of the Cleveland Clinic Centennial Celebration.